0: So I actually wonder if Twitter will ever change that, where instead of a like or a heart or whatnot, that they'll have a whole bunch of different emotions, kind of like what Facebook did.
1: So maybe like an empathy button. (laughs) (laughs) I feel for you, man. That's what rubbing the back to the vector is. It's the empathy button for the robot. (laughs) We're so sorry
0: that you threw your cube in a fire. (laughs) What was that? My HomePod heard me speak and thought that I was talking to it. Uh, It
1: wanted its own empathy.
0: Yeah. Siri needs brains before it can have feelings. (laughs) Podcast begin.
1: Welcome to ALH. In this episode, we're going to talk a bit about uh, the Mac Mini that I got and setting up new computers. But first we'll have a i guess a bit of follow up. The first one is of course more Tesla stuff because what is this podcast without uh 10 hours of Tesla talking? <laughs> and and that is that the the Model 3 that was supposedly disqualified for not having the correct fuel some people were responding basically saying no they were disqualified already for having a unauthorized driver, and they just decided to complete anyway, and then the whole thing was just a stage. And But then there was more updates after that, saying, no, we really were disqualified for not being the correct f- fuel. It was not just someone joking around that we could also be disqualified for that. So I don't know what to think anymore.
0: Yeah, I read that and I was completely confused.
1: Like, okay, what is this follow-up? What is happening? What are they doing? Yeah. But They've been assured that next year, the electric vehicles will be allowed. So there's that.
0: So allowed within that same class that they were disqualified from before or within
1: a separate class? I believe allowed within the enthusiast class, which was the one where they were disqualified before.
0: Okay, 2019, year of the electric vehicle.
1: And then the other bit of follow-up is related to when we were talking about the intel radio chips on the last podcast and it appears apple is looking to hire a bunch of qualcomm engineers uh it looks like they're raiding them in san diego
0: i mean i look at that story and i think
1: of course they are because the way to
0: look at it is the iphone is their cash cow they make what something like 60 percent plus of their revenue from the iphone right and uh apple's whole business is trying to make things as vertically integrated as possible so with the iphone 4 they started with their own cpu and then eventually worked down the stack and i mean what's one of the most important things about the iphone it's connectivity so it makes total sense that eventually they're going to go the route of designing
1: their own chips they want to control that too i remember there was um an article by Joel Spolsky basically talking about you want to, if you want to make a good product, you want to control everything that's at least one layer below what your actual product is.
0: And something to keep in mind with this as well is that this doesn't just apply to the iPhone. This could potentially apply to the Apple Watch, the iPad, and then hopefully someday the Mac. <laughs> I would love to actually have cellular service. A Mac with actual radio chips in it, yeah. That would be great. Cell- cellular radio. Right. So, I mean, I could see it definitely going that way someday. Of course, it's not going to make anything cheaper. I can still see them selling a Mac where for $200 more, they'll end up putting a cellular chip on it. But just the option to have it would be nice. Yep. You know, I can't help but think that if part of this comes from the fact that... uh qualcomm is being litigious and intel apple simply has no faith
1: in long term if uh, apple is moving to arm for their cpus on their desktops they don't want intel holding uh the radio chips over their head as a way to try and get them to sort of stay with the cpus
0: yeah that's true too maybe it's just that apple is really starting to hate x86 and since uh Intel has x86 microcode in their modem chips. I I somehow don't think that's it,
1: but... (laughs) I guess that's possible. (laughs) Alright, so the next thing is our continuing product over time series. This is the first update for the Enki Vector. I have... the, The amount of time that I've been using it is probably once every four or five days, which is not great for an assistant, but sort of decent for a toy. So how do you find you use it when you end up using it? So mostly when I use it, I just turn it on and watch it wander around and maybe talk to it a bit and ask it a couple of things. And then I get bored and I turn it off. Uh, it's, It's not really good as an assistant because it will turn on at random times and make noise when I don't want it to if it's on at all. Um, And the other reason it's not really good as an assistant is it is not nearly as good at hearing things as the Echo or the Google Home is. And and I was a little bit concerned that maybe my microphones were not working right because it has four microphones on it. And so I sent a support email to Anki Saying, this is really not picking me up nearly as well as my other devices. I, I know that it has four microphones. I'm concerned it's not working right. And they basically sent a reply uh, with a link to a di- diagnostic that I could run. So I like, I move its head, I, I press a button a bunch of times, and I move its head up and down, and then its face becomes like a little diagnostic screen, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> please take a picture of that (laughs) please please take a picture yeah sure and 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 I'll, i'll put it in the show notes one of the diagnostics that you can do after you like bob its head a certain number of times is what the current values for the microphones are and so i sort of verified that the numbers there uh move up and down when i'm talking to it and everything and that seemed fine so, it's not the microphone, it's just bad at listening to me. So, it's oh. it, it's a cat. <laughs> robot cat. Yeah, it's a um, robot cat. Sometimes, if it feels like it, it will listen to me. See, here I was thinking,
0: when you are talking about the fact that it has four microphones, it's a lot smaller than something like an Echo, and it has a lot less microphones, so I could have readily thought that, hey... The fact that it has less space dedicated for listening means that it wouldn't be as good at listening. But this honestly sounds like some kind of um, AI or DSP problem.
1: Yeah, I, I think that this is something that luckily they probably could improve with time by improving their software. And keep in mind that the Google Home only has two microphones, and they use machine learning to sort of compensate for the lack of clarity there. So, um, out of curiosity,
0: all of these other smart devices, they have a wake word. So
1: isn't the wake word baked into hardware somehow? It's better at recognizing the wake word than other things, but you still have to say the wake word, then pause, then do other stuff. So, I mean, it really does seem like a software thing. Hmm. Okay. So going back to what you do with it, um... Do
0: you think that you would end up using it a lot more once the API comes out?
1: I would think I would use it... Well, I think that the, the API, it, it is out at least for some of the earlier users. I don't know if it's out for everyone yet. Um, but I know that some people have have written programs for it already to do stuff. They've gotten it to go and like say a certain phrase when it sees a certain thing or whatever. You can get it to say that it's going to throw a holy hand grenade at you or whatever. (laughs) Cute. I guess uh, what I'm curious
0: about here is whether or not them waiting on the API is kind of killing it, meaning that uh, I can see somebody buying one of these, um, playing with it for a little while, and then just completely forgetting about it. And then the API comes out and there's a whole bunch of other stuff you can do with it that you couldn't do with it before. Mm -hmm.
1: But at that point, it's kind of out of your head and you've forgotten about it. Yeah. So I think I would probably use it a bit more if it were more readily apparent that when it's wandering around the environment that it's actually learning something and using that information that it's gathering to actually do something later. Because right now, when it's wandering around, I mean, it avoids hitting stuff and it avoids falling off ledges and everything, but it doesn't feel like it's actually doing anything other than wandering around. Hmm. Um, so have there been any software patches for it since you've had it? Uh, I believe there has been, but I'm not entirely sure. I think it just does it updates it automatically, so I haven't really paid a lot of attention to it.
0: Hmm, okay,
1: yeah, so that that pretty much covers the vector update next, as I discussed before, I got a one of the new Mac minis after they're announced, and the intent is basically to use it as a home server. Um, I do actually also have a Linux box that I'm not using as a home server and a Synology that I was using basically as my home server before that. It still has some functionality that I'm using of it, but uh, a lot of it I'm moving over to the Mac Mini because of its improved power over the Synology.
0: Okay, so uh, first to start this off, uh,
1: what specs did you get on your Mac Mini? So the specs that I got were pretty close to the high end for the cpu is a six core 3.2 gigahertz i7 and then i got 32 gigabytes of ram and a 512 gigabyte ssd and then the 10 gig uh, ethernet and i'm a little bit sad about getting the 32 gigabytes of ram because i learned after i ordered it that it is upgradable It's upgradable to 64, right? It's upgradable to 64. So I was thinking, well, maybe it would have been better to just get the 8 gigabytes and then upgraded it to myself to 64, which would have probably still been cheaper than getting the Apple 32. Do you still like opening up computers? Because, I mean, I
0: find I hate it. I don't really hate it so much as I get paranoid about it now. Yeah, well, that's partly why I get paranoid. Is I mean I remember when I was younger I would buy computers I would buy the motherboard the CPU the RAM everything put it together and sometimes it wouldn't post and yep. at that point I'm freaking out because I need to get
1: work done mm-hmm. yeah yeah I I remember ruining so many things back when I had a Macintosh LC and I was messing with stuff on that computer um, it became like. A thing that I did almost every weekend to like completely reinstall the OS because I had hosed something. <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, one
0: of the first computers I had, b- besides the terrible, terrible Tandy, um, I had a 286 that was eventually upgraded to a 3D6, and it was kind of a Frankenstein of a machine that would end up getting upgraded over time. Mm-hmm. But uh, the very first hard drive I ever had was a 40 megabyte hard drive. All right. Mine was a 20 megabyte. And uh, in order to play Doom on my computer, I would have to compress Windows and delete it. Delete the (laughs) Windows folder. Then I would install Doom and I would play it for a little while. And then when I was done with it, I would just delete Doom and then unzip the Windows and then pretty much put everything back where it was before. It was a terrible process. It was a completely
1: terrible process. I remember being like, so excited to get like this external 100 megabyte hard drive attached via scuzzy
0: i think i went from a 40 megabyte hard drive to a 640 megabyte hard drive and it was bliss for a while oh wow yeah that's quite an yeah. upgrade for you yeah um so i have to ask since you were playing with a macintosh lc did you ever get to see the sad mac face in person Oh, yeah, I saw it plenty of times.
1: <laughs> like see, I said, I, I was doing things all the time that could potentially completely screw up my system. And I mean, this is a lot of how I learned.
0: See, the first time I ever even heard of the Sad Mac was uh, I remember getting memory and uh, I got RAM. And for some reason, the RAM, I think, came with a cassette tape on how to do an upgrade Okay. And I'm watching I'm watching through the tape and it says, you know, for a PC that uh, you hear a beep if the system ends up posting where on the Mac, if you end up putting in the memory wrong, that uh, it'll start up and you'll see the sad Mac face. Yeah. And I
1: just remember laughing like, OK, really? This is there, a thing. The sad Mac was a thing. It's part of the whimsy that Apple has lost. Mm-hmm i would love for the
0: sad mac to come back i just never ever ever want to see it in person <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i i saw the sad mac a lot on uh the mac plus that we had or it was actually one of the original macintoshes that we did the um the motherboard upgrade to the mac plus mm. um that that machine burned in a fire <laughs> seriously i'm serious okay <laughs> so no um my mom used to teach special education with emotionally disturbed students and after we had purchased a new computer, she took that one into work and one of her students burned the school down, including the Mac. Oh, okay. No, it's it's really too bad because I, I really I really wish we still had that computer. So getting back to the
0: actual Mac Mini, so you're saying you got it with five hundred twelve gigabytes of SSD. Uh, what are you, you said you were using it for Synology.
1: So what are you hooking it up to uh, storage wise? I got an eight terabyte external hard drive to attach to it. Um, it was just one of those Western digital, my book things. And even though it's slow, it's it's fast enough for streaming video and whatnot. And so one of the reasons I wanted to switch away from the Synology is I, um, If you have Backblaze, it will it will back up all of your attached drives, but it won't back up any of uh, your network drives. And so I wanted something that would back up everything that I had on my home server. And so I wanted to run Backblaze directly on the Mac Mini itself and have it back up all of its drives and everything be happy.
0: Okay, so uh, how would that work if you ended up having everything burning in a fire? uh, Would they be sending you an eight terabyte hard drive? Yeah,
1: that is one of the options. The other option is to actually download the whole thing, which would take forever. (laughs) Oh boy! So if the way Backblaze works is, uh, if something happens and they need to send, they can. You have an option for them to send you a drive with all of the data, and then. Uh, if you send them the drive back, they send give you the money back for the for the drive.
0: Yeah, I thought it was just something that uh,
1: you ended up keeping the drive and paying the money. That is one option, and the other option is to get, send them back the drive and get the money back. It's it the other. It's currently also taking over uh, Plex duty because it can actually do uh, the transcoding in real time, whereas the Synology could not. That was one of the things that was really annoying if like I got an MKV for some reason. Like if an if an MKV fell off a truck and it happened to land <laughs> on my drive <laughs> and I wanted to play it, um, it was annoying to have it go uh, and have the Synology be pretty much too slow to real time transcode it to H two sixty four and have it play on my Apple TV
0: um so you had asked me a question about ffmpeg last week was that related to this or was that something work
1: related so basically i have a project where i am going to need to decode a video stream and then do some analysis on it and then re-encode it for a display on a remote system and i wanted to be able to do like a regular rtp stream or whatever and have it show up on the client system without having to have them need a custom software. So my fallback, if I can't actually get it to work in real time and figure out how Plex did it or whatever, um, is to have a a custom client uh, that basically receives JPEGs, essentially, and display those in real time.
0: Uh, What kind of machine is this happening on? Something of note is if you are doing it on a Mac that they do have encoders for HEVC underscore video toolbox. Oh yeah, the HEVC hardware encoder. There may be something for H264 video toolbox if it's happening on a Mac. It is not.
1: It's a Linux machine.
0: Okay, yeah, because video toolbox unfortunately is a library that's built into Mac OS. What I was thinking though is that uh, since the Mac Mini has actual H265 encoding support, that it may be something that something like Plex could take advantage of.
1: Uh, There's an option in Plex to use hardware encoding if it's available, and I do have that checked, but it still seems to be able to do it in real time even if I don't. You said this is 264, not 265, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah, because 265, uh, software encoding is a lot, lot slower. Uh, Okay.
1: So one of the things that I... Really like about the new Mac Mini is that it has a gazillion ports. Um, unfortunately, I am mostly just using the uh, USB Type A ports and not the USB C ports because that's what the drives mostly are. So
0: uh, you ended up getting an enclosure for your eight terabyte hard drive, or is it an
1: actual drive? No, no, no. I just got I just got an external drive that I'm attaching via USB. I wanted to get a USB-C slash Thunderbolt 3 enclosure, but most of those, like the enclosures, cost more than it would cost me to just buy like three USB external hard drives. And granted, I could then do like a RAID configuration if I got the enclosure, but suppose I've learned that a lot of times your uh point of failure is not necessarily <laughs> the hard drive. The point of failure is often the raid the the raid hardware. And if that mm-hmm. goes, then you have no way of getting your data back unless you get an identical system to that. And considering that uh the enclosures that are USB C slash Thunderbolt enclosures cost about it costs more than if you just bought the hard drives, the external hard drives, and plugged them in. It just didn't seem worth it. Yeah. Plus,
0: if you have Backblaze, it ends up being okay since you end up having um, an off-site
1: backup. Right. And that's how I was planning on handling as just having Backblaze for what I needed it for. Though I do have to go in and change some settings to allow for, like, dmgs to be backed up and everything because i have a bunch of disk images and it by default it won't back up disk images
0: oh okay hmm
1: uh though i i did i did change that and i'll have to check on it to make sure it actually did back up my disk images but i think it probably did
0: Hmm. okay so um how how involved was it switching over i mean on this new uh setup you have
1: There's a standard transitioning to a new computer stuff that we'll talk about a bit later with our setting up new computers. Um, And then there's the stuff that I did specific to this machine, which was getting all of the Plex and related other utilities uh, installed. And that was a little bit annoying. Um, I ran into a problem with Plex where um, it was, for some reason, not... uh, not providing a secure connection, and it was saying even though I had uh, secure connections preferred setting on the machine, uh, there's a little green lock on Plex to show you that it's a secure connection, and I was not getting the little green lock. And every time I would try to connect to it from another machine, it would basically say this machine is not accepting secure connections. Please make sure that you have the setting. And I went and I looked up, looked it up, and. Everything seemed fine. It said maybe your network connections, everything seemed fine. And as I was writing a post on the Plex forums, I looked back at it from the other machine and there was a little green lock. It just mysteriously started working and I I have have really no idea why. Do you think it was some kind of thing
0: that was synced, like some kind of setting that ended up syncing locally and that happened? My only theory
1: is I, I know that Plex has their own little key system for getting secure connections, uh, where they provision keys automatically to the Plex servers. And I think that because I already had a key that was associated with another machine on this IP, uh, that it might have been conflicting with their provisioning system. And that's what messed it up, but I'm not 100% sure. So what you're saying by that metric is that you can't
0: have multiple Plex machines within the same local network that are using the same external IP
1: address? That that just seems to be my only theory. Um, it's possible that it wasn't it because I also tried installing, uh, just to test, I had tried installing Plex, uh, the Plex server on another Mac, and I ran into exactly the same problem. Uh, so that's sort of my only th- guess at the moment is it's a key provisioning thing.
0: Hmm. Okay. Any other setup issues? Uh,
1: not really. I did run into uh, some interesting things when I was transitioning from using my 5K monitor to uh, just being headless. So right now, when I use my 5K monitor, I run, the, run it through my external GPU. So I figured I'd just plug the Mac mini when doing setup into my external GPU and into the monitor and it turns out that when you unplug it and you try and remote desktop into the Mac Mini, it just it it shows a screen, but it is just a 5K black screen. Oh, hmm. so it still sort of I guess expected the eGPU to be there. Um, when I connected the monitor directly to the Mac Mini and then went and. Uh, remote desktop vnc'd in it it worked fine probably a buggy should report to them yeah probably o- overall i really like it it was i was sad when i moved it into my closet uh but that's where it's living now i did some benchmarks uh which compared to my 2016 15 inch macbook pro uh, the interesting thing is in like Cinebench, it's about 20% faster uh, even when using the external GPU for both my MacBook Pro and uh, the Mac Mini. So even for GPU supposedly limited tasks, it's faster using the same GPU. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I'm guessing that has to do with uh, the OpenGL overhead in Cinebench. I am I don't think they've upgraded to Metal. I'm not 100% sure, though. Well, they're going to have to soon. Yep. And then for, like, a pure CPU tasks, it appears to be about 45% faster than my 2016 MacBook Pro, which is nice. Yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty nice.
0: The only thing regrettable right now for me is that uh, there is no really good 5K monitor for the Mac Mini to plug it into
1: what I'm using is the LG ultra fine 5k and yeah it does have its own issues yeah I mean didn't you have to have that replaced at one point or was there some kind? no of I'm still using the one that has the interference problems and I never bothered to replace it so now I'm sort of stuck with it, it though the the more annoying issue for me is that it has uh burn in yeah I'm sorry it has image retention um, so if I leave something in one place for more than a minute or so, and then I move it all, it, it stays there, which is really irritating. Other than and that, I mean, else? it's a really pretty display when it doesn't have image re- retention.
0: I don't know if it's an LG thing because my, um, C seven LG TV has that kind of image retention. It's well, not flat out burn in. Mm-hmm. It's actually better with burn in than the last LG TV I had. Um, But um, if I have it on the Apple TV and I have it on the menu and then I go into something black, I kind of see a ghost
1: image of the individual icons that were there. I think that's something that's supposedly fairly inherent to OLEDs, actually. A lot of OLEDs Uh, have the same problem.
0: Yeah, but I I didn't see that problem on the prior um, LG OLED that I had before the C7. So...
1: Do you normally set things up, like new machines up from scratch, or do you do like an automated transfer of settings and stuff? I
0: I try to do a transfer when I can. I mean, it's still been, the last new computer I got was the uh, 2017 MacBook Pro, and what I ended up doing was I ended up backing it up to our Time Machine, and then ending up using the Time Machine as a restore. Ah, uh-huh. The reason I like doing that is pretty much that way. I have everything in place. Mm -hmm. Um, I have all, you know, everything that goes within my home folder, Um, all the batch scripts, all the settings, all the dot profile stuff is still there. Mm -hmm. Um, And the only time I ever really set up something as a new computer is either when it is a new computer that didn't replace a specific computer, or Mm -hmm. if I have a whole bunch of problems as part of the setup process. Uh-huh. Like um, an analog to that would be setting up a new iPhone. Like if I have a whole bunch of issues on my current version of iOS, then I may actually go ahead and set it up as a new copy and redownload all the apps and all that kind of new setup stuff. But whenever I can, I try and
1: transfer when it's a replacement computer. See, I'm, I'm the, the opposite. I normally don't replace it unless I'm absolutely certain that I want that exact setup. Uh, just because between OS transitions, there's some things that oftentimes get messed up, um, particularly like if I have uh, sometimes all have installed stuff that I kind of regret installing in the first place or, um, have, or at the time was a good idea, but maybe later it wasn't, um, like for how Mac ports used to work and how Mac ports can be very invasive in your system and whatnot.
0: See, I used to be of the other mind when I was on Windows. So whenever I uh, was on Windows and was upgrading, I would very, very often end up just reinstalling the OS entirely and then try to move over whatever kind of documents and settings I ended up having from the old install. Mm-hmm. But then the reason for that is Windows is, at least back in the 90s and 2000s, Windows wasn't that particularly great when it came to uh having a whole bunch of crap software on the system and leaving remnants of it. So uh, WinRot would end up setting in a lot of the time for a lot of different things. And uh, having a new version of the operating system installed on Windows is kind of like, okay, it's a fresh lease on life for your device. Mm -hmm.
1: That's also what I did, and maybe that's part of why I still do it on the Mac. Though there are definitely applications that mess with system stuff that uh, can be tricky to keep on going to a new machine and could potentially cause problems. And since there's ways to automatically get the rest of your documents over uh, fairly easily, um, like most of my actual documents and work I keep in Dropbox, or there's a thing on the Synology called Cloud Station, which basically is like Dropbox, except that it's syncing using a, uh, your Synology drive instead of going out to the battled internet to do it. Though I'm going to probably try and transition off of Cloud Drive just to Dropbox.
0: I mean, uh, not to mention what I think most people on
1: Mac use is that they're going to be transitioning towards iCloud. Yeah. And and so because of that, uh, I often will just set up clean, and especially with the Mac Mini, which it doesn't have the same purpose as my desktop machine. Uh, I was definitely setting up clean there yeah
0: another thing with uh mac os is i find a lot of the apps that i end up using are sandboxed anyway so when it comes to stuff from the mac app store those don't particularly mess with system settings in a way that's completely unrecoverable that's true so because of that i feel less reluctant to um to, you know, migrate from an old machine to a new machine using the same settings. Yeah. I mean, the only stuff that really, really gets deep in there for me is like my VPN software and then Backblaze. I find that it's not, uh, I'm not doing anything really over the top when it comes to digging into system settings or using any software that really does. I don't feel that setting up a new system is as important as it used to be for
1: me now is this the same for when you're setting up other machines like if you have to set up a new linux box or whatever do you try and do like a clone of something else or
0: oh no that's different when it's uh usually when it's a linux box i try to set it up as brand new okay usually because um i feel like the linux process isn't necessarily as clean of an upgrade process Mm -hmm. funny enough (laughs) uh generally in my work we use ubuntu and Mm -hmm. um or ubuntu i should say it right because of that we have versions of linodes that are running a version of ubuntu that was upgraded from something that started in what 2011 2012 Mm -hmm. so we end up putting a new version and then a new version on top of that and a new version on top of that and i feel like it's more likely to run into problems with the upgrade process if it comes from a really really old install than it does if it's brand new Mm -hmm. So because of that, when I end end up having a new Linode or new Linux machine or whatnot, I really, really try and do it from clean. So that way there's as little as possible installed on the node and
1: anything I need, I just go ahead and install it. Okay. So do you do that? Do you have like a whole process for getting the stuff on there or do you have anything automated? I mean,
0: generally I don't set up a new stuff all that often. So generally what I do is, I mean, I set up a new node. I install Apache, Apache PHP, MySQL, pretty much anything that ends up going on a LAMP stack, if that's mm-hmm. what that machine is used for. And then from that point, go into the Apache configuration, set up the domain that's needed. And then that's uh, pretty much it, besides any setting up any kind of firewall rules that go
1: with it. Uh, sort of a little bit gets into, um, do, you, do you have a naming system for your computers? uh for which my home computers or my work computers for either do you do you do you do you have a like a system that you use to to name new machines and new drives and stuff see way back in my twenties back in the magical land of two
0: thousand <laughs>
1: uh in the year two thousand
0: <laughs> I used to actually uh name my computers based off of ships in wing Commander oh. like i think the the nicest ship was Avenger. So that was actually my main
1: computer for a while. Okay. Well, what happens when you upgrade it? Then your computer's no longer the nicest ship.
0: Well, uh, what I ended up doing was I ended up upgrading for a while, and then the nicest computer would then become Avenger, and then I would rename the other computer or repurpose it or reinstall the OS for it. That
1: seems like it would be very confusing.
0: It was more in my head of, um, for a while, it was, okay, I had two computers at home. One was my primary computer that I would do work on, and one was kind of my Linux machine that would be my underpowered let's-play-around-on-Linux machine. I see. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was kind of different then because um, the ubiquity of virtual private servers hadn't really taken off at that point. I see. So, you know, now you can get something for five bucks a month or so. Mm-hmm. And in the case of our work... Our work has a whole bunch of them. I think we have something like 13 different nodes for our work. Mm -hmm. And generally naming of that is just based off of the domain, the primary domain that it's used for. So nothing really, really eccentric. Because my thought is like, okay, if I end up dropping dead and somebody needs to sign into the machine, they'll have more of an idea of what each server is just by looking at it rather than having to untangle it. Mm -hmm. So I try not to be all that elegant with it now. (laughs) And as for my home computers, my home computers, I mean, primarily my, I have my iMac and my laptop. And with that, I just stuck with Mark's MacBook Pro and Mark's iMac. And that's pretty much it. So it's stupid. It's stupid and terrible. And I should probably come up with a better naming convention for it. We should have a contest. (laughs) Name
1: Mark's computer.
0: Yeah, but, I'm, but that's kind of worrisome, because I, I don't know what kind of listeners we have, but uh, <laughs> I'm kind of worried that it's kind of like one of those contests where uh, my my machine becomes something. Mackie McMackface? Yes, Mackie Mac. So how about you?
1: What do you use for naming on your computers? So uh, a while back, I figured that I wanted something where I could name computers for a while, and I, I, I ended up deciding that I would use uh, element names for my computers. So my MacBook Pro is called Carbon, and my new Mac Mini is Oxygen. And I have a gazillion different machines, so I've used several elements at this point. And then my drives have different names. My drives are all like subatomic particles Oh, <laughs> so one of them is strange and charm. Yeah, actually, I do have. I have uh, strange. I have charm. I have Tao. I have Muon. My my new external drive that I'm using on the the Mac Mini is Muon. This this may have not been the wisest thing because I can never remember which is which. So I've created on my own little internal web page a list of all of my computers and drives along with their IPs and what they are used for. <laughs> oh, subatomic particles, Schrodinger's drive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Only issue I would have with having my computer called Carbon is I could see it. I could see there being some confusion with the old, uh, what is it, Mac OS graphical
1: interface. Yeah, there is that, but uh, I haven't run into any problems with it so far. So, so that's how I name him. You don't really need to go and get your apps and your settings back, but I I can go over what I've been doing for that. Sure. So I I, I have different kinds of machines that I set up. I set up VMs, and then I set up Macs, and I set up Linux boxes, and occasionally I'll set up a Windows box, but it's very rare. Um, Hmm. And so for the Windows box, I don't have any process for it because it's rare enough. Uh, For VMs, I... Try and keep frozen states of partial installs that I can clone and you um, branch off from later. Wait a minute. So what you're doing is you're freezing the process during the installation. So after after I've installed like a, a standard base set of stuff uh, for a particular kind of test that I want to run or set of software that I want to run up for, I, I save it off as a, I have a, a parallel snapshot of that location. I go and I, I do some other stuff like I install some sort of software that I don't want to install on my main machine or I uh, set up uh, the test install that I want to run or whatever. And then when I want to do another one, I just go back from the same snapshot. So all of my settings and the stuff that I want to always have installed is installed and I just go off from there. Are these generally Windows snapshots that you're doing? Uh, These are actually often Mac and Linux snapshots. Um, Okay. Like, for example, I do some work with uh, Mac ports, and I don't want Mac ports installed on my main machine because, as I just mentioned earlier, uh, it tends to mess with some system stuff that I don't want it to mess with. This is unlike Homebrew and Conda, and um, SPAC and some other package managers that uh, live in user land and don't mess up your system settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but one of the things I have to support is MacParts. And so I do uh, I have that installed on a VM. Uh, and I often need to install from a m- certain packages already being installed uh, with MacParts. And so I keep those as a snapshot.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. And that would make sense considering uh, you setting things up as new when you have those kind of package managers that you have to worry about. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I find with me that uh, most of the VMs I end up using are simply the ones that are provided by windows and the whole modern dot IE thing, ah. which uh, yeah, I use those in order to do uh, web browser compliance testing. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to that, I just generally need to download it and then start mm-hmm. it, which it's a really, really simple process just because um, generally I'm going into a web browser and testing a website and that's it. Mm -hmm. The annoying thing with Microsoft, though, is that Microsoft makes their images expire. So that's why I don't keep those images for any long-term amount of time. I just go in and I re-download it whenever I need to use those VMs.
1: Mm -hmm. And then there's everything else. So I have a little bit of a different process for my work accounts and my uh, and whatnot where in those cases uh, I'll usually cop over, copy over my vimRC and some profile settings and some scripts and then there's my own machines which is a more involved process I have a GitHub account and I have a private repositories for that and so I created a new computer setup GitHub repository uh, so the first thing I do on a new machine is I I, I set up my my SSH keys in GitHub for the new machine, and I d- download. I, I use it to clone this setup project, and then I run it, and um, it takes care of as much stuff as I as possible. So um, a lot of the stuff, because I want to keep my scripts and everything in sync between machines, I have um, uh, like a directory in Dropbox, and so uh, one of the things that will set up is sourcing. Uh, a script to to uh, set up my aliases and stuff like that that are common among my machines. Uh, so the way that the script works is it'll set up things on the local machine like for if it's if it's a Mac it will re- remap uh, cap locks to escape. <laughs> nice. It will change the scroll direction from natural to the old way. Um, I really wish that you could change the scroll direction per device. Like I want my trackpad to be quote natural, but my mouse to be the my mouse scroll wheel to be the other way. Um, I'll change. It'll automatically change my finder view style to be list view. Uh, it will copy a bunch of stuff. It will uh, go and point to a startup script to run like on uh, both on profile launch and machine launch. Um, and then um, it will point to the Dropbox location and the cloud and the uh, the cloud drive location for other stuff. And then there's like an, a, a few things that the script will optionally do, like set up an SSH daemon. I don't like saying daemon. And then I try and have it automatically install the apps that are um, most important to me. So first, what it does is it installs uh, Homebrew. Uh, automatically, The script installs Homebrew. And then yeah. from there, a lot of the stuff that I use most often, you can actually do with a brew cask install. Um, so things like Dropbox, Chrome, Coda, 1Password, and a whole bunch of other things, I can just do a brew cask install, and they'll be installed automatically. And yeah. then there's stuff that comes from the Apple App Store. And there's another app called Mass, that is uh downloadable via homebrew and what you can do with mass is it will install from the command line stuff that is in the uh the apple app store so i do use that for things like things uh kindle solver slack uh evernote and uh like Thesa.
0: so uh with that is it only things that you've purchased already or can you actually buy things via the command line with this
1: I have not tried to actually buy things with the com- over the command line with it. I've only tried to install things that I've already purchased with it. Okay, something for follow-up, I guess. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then there's, like... I have, like, as part of my little repository, I have a uh, a little file that has a list of things that I have not yet automated that I will, at some point in the future, automate. And there's a lot of stuff that's involved... That, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's basically finding out which defaults right I need to use. Uh, defaults right would be the way that you change system settings on the Mac uh, via the command line. So, uh, are these scripts all Apple script, or what is? Uh... It's just a, It's actually just a Python script. Oh, okay. And then it goes a uh, os to run system commands. Oh, <laughs> uh, so could you pretty, potentially- pretty lame. Could you potentially do this stuff in Bash? Yeah, a lot of it you could do okay. in Bash. I just wanted easier flexibility for, because in the future what I want to do is have it set up more as like a uh, like a JSON file that has the application to install along with, or things like the application install the command that you use to install it, etc. And that way I could iterate through the list easily and um, have certain sets of things in certain situations and uh, proper prompting and stuff like that, without me having to go and edit the script each time I want to set up a machine. Mm-hmm. So this basically. is all way more involved than it needs to be, but this is <laughs> this is this is what happens inside the the mind of an engineer.
0: Oh uh, yeah, programming in general. Yeah, you find that uh, <laughs> you find you spend two hours on a script that saves you five minutes of time once <laughs> a year. I,
1: I hope it saves me more than that, and a lot of it is making sure that i have all of the stuff that i'm expecting to have and sometimes there, there's a thing like i forgot that i had this setting set a particular way and it comes back to bite me at a very inconvenient time so i want to make sure i take care of it uh, all at once i
0: mean i see how that makes a lot of sense for you since you're using a lot of mac os vms it's just for me i don't really use very many mac os vms so uh taking the time to write that kind of script to install and set up things just isn't worth it for me. <laughs> I mean, there's my family that I set up computers for and every time I get a new <laughs> machine. So you're teaching them the religion of your uh, specific setup.
1: Uh, sort of. So, so a good example of like a setting that I want to make sure to have that I sometimes forget about is a SSH setting where, um, I want to set server alive interval to one twenty to prevent my SSH sessions to from getting disconnected when I leave them idle. Since a lot of times that's, that's
0: annoyingly happens. What's the default on that? Because I don't seem to run into a lot of problems with
1: that on my side. Well, it really depends on who you're connecting to. So some, it, it, because usually you get disconnected by the remote machine, you don't get disconnected mm-hmm. by your own machine. And so the server-alive interval to basically sends them packets so they don't disconnect you. Right, so if you're setting so. up all your own stuff, you're less likely to run into it. But since I connect to machines that I don't control, I have that setting there, so I don't get disconnected. But I'm uh, just leaving it idle.
0: Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um. I think Coda includes its own keep-alive
1: setting, doesn't it? That's very possible, but I don't know.
0: Anyhow, anything else we
1: should cover on this? Uh, I think that pretty much covers it. I mean, it was very exciting to learn <laughs> about uh, brew cask install, just because I, it's, it's sort of neat that uh, you can install all these things that normally you would have to go and search for the correct download location for where you can just go and do it from the command line. And it happens to know about all of these normal software apps like Chrome.
0: Yeah, I've used it very, very little. And I think what I've used it for wasn't an actual you know, application that has a GUI, but a uh, something like, I think, FFmpeg. I think that's what I ended up using it for.
1: Yeah, I think FFmpeg is one of their just regular brew installs. Like the cask ones are ones that are sort of outside their normal dependency system and more like regular packaged software kind of stuff. As in not part of... Uh, homebrew itself not a recipe but uh, basically just grabbing regular commercial software. Oh that's weird I'm going to have to play with that. Yeah because there's the the people that set this up that have it uh, pointing to the official sources for for these pieces of software and whatnot. Okay so I guess uh, should we wrap up the show? Let's wrap up the show. Thank you for listening to ALH you can visit us at ALH.FM and look at our show notes. And uh, we would like to thank seven and a half Patreon subscribers that we have now. Uh, Apparently there was a major catastrophe in the Andromeda galaxy that uh, there was a sort of uh, ALH cleansing that occurred. We're, We're sorry to have them go.
0: Our thoughts and prayers go out to them.
1: Yeah. All of those supernova regulations just didn't go through. There needs to be a waiting period. (laughs) This is the point you just play podcast end. (laughs) Do it. Podcast end.
0: Uh, So you were saying that you use GitHub. Mm -hmm. I mean, you use GitHub locally. I use GitHub to grab the things off of GitHub. I use Git locally. Okay. So uh, right now we have a developer. uh, We have somebody who's working front-end development. They're going to be redoing the templates for our software to make it look, you know, pretty much make the front-end part of the site look nicer and more modern, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the guy was, uh, you know, I I had to explain that, yes, we're using a very old version of the software. That's our repositories are within subversion. However, we're looking to move over to Git. And the guy is like, why don't you get something at either GitHub or GitLab? Mm-hmm. What I was thinking here is like, well, okay, we're, we already have a machine. We have a $5 a month machine that's already dedicated to being a repository. Right.
1: You could install GitLab on that if you want to stick with GitLab. Uh, okay. I thought GitLab was a service. It's both. You can, you can download their software and install GitLab on like a Linux machine. And that's, that's actually what I used to do. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just that I like the collaboration, not that I need it for my own stuff, but I like the collaboration features. I like the statistics tracking. Um, I like all of the other, um, features of, uh, GitHub a lot more than GitLab it's just mm-hmm. a lot nicer.
0: Yeah. All I was thinking on our end is that when we move over to Git is just have a Git repository on the same machine that we have, the subversion repositories, and just have him pull, you know, have him pretty much pull and push to that repository that we already have set up, rather than having to set up a paid service somewhere else.
1: Yeah. Okay. So since you haven't actually done development using GitHub, it is it is it is very nice. So okay. it has Issue tracking, bug tracking, it has. And then the nice thing is uh, because of things like Git blame or whatever, you can figure out who made a particular commit. And like, also, it works really well for code reviews because you could bef- when you're doing a before you do a pull request, um, when you do the pull request, it'll sit, automatically set up uh, like a, a comments uh, thing where like e- each person can go back and forth and comment on it. And you can actually go to a particular line of code for a, a code change. And you can make a comment on that particular line of code, like, are you sure you really need this or whatever? And then they can reply mm-hmm. back for that particular line or, and whatnot and change it in another commit. And it's really nice how it tracks all that and integrates really well with the development process, especially if you have more than one person there. Even if you have just yourself um, and you're looking at an old commit, you can make a, a comment to yourself.
0: Yeah, because I was thinking that, uh, I mean, you know, I'm evaluating Seeing okay, what do I end up getting by uh, migrating over? And it's it's like super cheap too. It's like five bucks a month. Yeah, is it five bucks per month per repository, or is it you get as many as you want for your paid account? It's like five bucks a mm-hmm. month. So I mean, I'm looking at this for myself. Um, when it comes to the actual core software, I am the only person who has uh, any kind of commit or review or anything mm-hmm. like that. When it comes to our CMS software, but when it comes to anything like the templates that uh, we're considering the templates, since it's gonna be worked on by a front-end person and possibly me and possibly my business partner, of uh, potentially having
1: that in a repository that's more suited for uh, collaboration. Yeah, and you definitely should do that. And what generally you wanna have like a certain small set of people being able to integrate the pull requests. And so, mm-hmm. Everyone else, aside from maybe you, you, like you, maybe you can commit directly to the repository or to a particular branch um, that you would mm-hmm. set as like what your main branch is, um, mm-hmm. and then everyone else they would go and create their own local branches, and uh, then they would push the local branch to the to GitHub. And mm-hmm. they would initiate a pull request, basically. As, as soon as they commit their own local branch and they go to GitHub, there's a little button that automatically pops up saying uh, review code and submit pull request. And mm-hmm. if they click that, then they that starts, starts off the little comment thread. And then you can do something like review and merge it into your code um, from there. Uh, or you can tell them to update some stuff uh, first. And then you can go and do your merge into the... Uh, the primary branch and whatnot.
0: So it sounds like what it'll be is that
1: uh, each person will have their own branch. You don't need a do, No, 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 no. It's, it's much more, you don't do it that way. Mm-hmm. So usually there's um, a master branch. And then for every kind of code change that you want to do, you create a branch. Mm-hmm. So there's, and then after they submit the pull request for, uh, f- for integrating that branch into the main branch that you have, uh, then usually you just delete that branch and then they go and do it again for the next, uh, for the next set of code that they want to put in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Usually you want to have pretty frequent merges.
0: Okay. It's just generally right now with subversion, what we've been doing is we don't even have branches. Mm -hmm. We just have a master and that's it. Right. It
1: it, it is, it is a little bit different workflow from that, but I think Mm -hmm. that it definitely helps with code protection, and uh being able to understand where the changes came from and everything like that along with other collaborative things
0: so you're saying within git that it's possible to look at a to easily look at a specific line of code and track where it's been changed Mm -hmm. so like i mean not just a file but a specific part like you highlight a portion of it and
1: it's able to look up reviews yes I, I believe it's I believe it's called Git blame, and that will track down who made that change and when and what commit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that actually that would be really really useful for me. Yeah, because it's not
0: not just track not so much tracking down the person since I'm the person who's doing it, but a lot of the time we have uh, clients who say, "Oh, something has changed in our software," mm-hmm. and what I like you know what I like doing is I like being able to go back to them and say, "This hasn't changed since that this specific date." Right. And in uh, Subversion right now, all I can do is I right-click on the file and I go in and I look at the commit history. Mm -hmm. I look at the commit history and I kind of have to go line hunting to see where specifically this, uh, what build this ended up changing on. Right. So it it takes a little bit more time. Where, on the other hand, if I can go ahead and right-click on a specific line of code or block of code and look at changes there... That would end up saving a decent amount of time whenever that kind of thing comes up, and people ask, "Oh, what has this changed?"
1: Yeah, um, one okay. of the other nice things about it, like using GitHub is it for each file you can get like a visual history of it, and mm-hmm. you can click through all of the previous commits for that relating to that file and see what they all look like and have them diff against things and everything. Mm-hmm. There's like batch converters for subversion to Git, so you don't lose any of your history. mm-hmm. And so that's, that's how I'd recommend doing that is first convert it to a Git repository and then upload it to GitHub, like set uh, GitHub as uh, your primary remote or your origin and uh, put it there.
0: Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I'm thinking more likely that uh, this whole iPad experiment, I'm thinking you're going to find a lot more tools with Git than you are a subversion. Yeah. The only other thing is, like I'd said before, is uh, making sure that there's kind of the counter there to see what, uh, you know, what increment, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty much what increment of build that is. Right. Because, uh, yeah, because when we compile it, uh, when we pretty much quote unquote compile
1: the program, uh, we bake in the actual uh, version number. Right. So what you want to do there is you want to make sure that you have like an actual tagged release. Um, at some uh, put in there, and then uh, di- after that, Git describe will give you a count basically of the number of commits beyond, uh, that uh version that you have, and so you always have something unique.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting premise. Yeah. So, um,
1: between the two, between GitHub and GitLab, I mean, which uh. Which would you do? Okay, so there's two reasons that you'd want to use GitLab. One is you want to have it hosted on your own machine, and two is you want it to be cheaper. Anything else, I would use GitHub.
0: Yeah, okay. So, I mean, GitHub, what I'm thinking here is, you know, just pay the cost. Mm-hmm. And uh, all I'm looking for is I just want it to not be publicly accessible. Yeah, that, that's all. Yeah,
1: that's all you have to do with uh, the private main Obviously, they have to know about it because they're hosting <laughs> it. Um, right, yeah. And the, the, uh, the other nice thing, the GitHub user community is giant. And mm-hmm. if you want to include someone on one of your projects that you wouldn't normally include, well, you just go and invite them <laughs> on GitHub. And yeah. or if you want, And you can do things like, um, at mention anyone. So if you do, uh, if you do like at calling, then you'll get my attention on something and it will send me an email saying so-and-so wants you to look at something.
0: I just tried Stardew Valley for the first time. Ah. I know what I'm supposed to do within a limited scope of what it gives you right now. I'm in the process of raising four parsnips or however many parsnips it wants me to, uh, But I'm looking at this thinking, okay, it's a farm simulator, it's an RPG, what is this game? I'm still kind of in that initial confusing stage when it comes to that
1: game. I I haven't actually played it that much, um, but Seth has. And Mm -hmm. it is like Animal Crossing, except that you do a lot more gardening and there's fighting monsters. What?!